This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. We will not comply with the institution's sick illusion. No, it won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. Televised government been telling lies If you're not with us, you better step aside Witnessing the genocide, everything is centralized The food that we consume and spraying it all with pesticides Easily identify the sheep and the snake The real and the fake, giving us a reason to pray I'ma make my own choices, a voice for the voiceless They trying to destroy us, avoiding the poison It's all pointless if you don't have a purpose If you read the verses, you'll know who we versing Government can tell you what your worth is Look deeper than the surface They don't even want you researching Or asking questions, we all being tested Shh. Shut your mouth and comply, that's the message Want you to rest on prescriptions that mess with your head Got you stressing, suppressing expression We will not comply With the institution's sick illusion Welcome to episode 56 of the World Beyond War podcast I'm your guest host today, filling in for the inimitable Mark Elliott Stein, who is one of our honored guests today. My name is Maria Santelli, and I'm the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War in Washington, D.C. Folks who are regular listeners of the show may remember me and our organization from episode 54. Our work is with resistors from the U.S. military, conscientious objectors who, in the course of their military duties, have a crisis of conscience and seek discharge as conscientious objectors. It is through that work that I became acquainted with initially David Swanson, co-founder and current executive director of World Beyond War. Our special episode today celebrates the 10th anniversary of World Beyond War. Our cast of characters today includes Phil Gittens, the education director of World Beyond War. We have also with us David Swanson, the executive director. We have also with us Mark Elliott Stein, who is technology director, and Gabriel Aguirre, who is uh, the Latin American organizer. And who have I missed? As other people show up, a few people mentioned they'll be late. When people show up, you can introduce them, Maria. All right. Well, welcome to everyone. Thank you all so much for taking time out of your busy work for World Beyond War uh, to be with us today and celebrate this auspicious occasion. Thank you all. We're just going to start with some introductions from each of you, who you are, you know, your background, how you became involved in the work for peace, and say a little bit about what each of you see and, and do as your role with World Beyond War. We're going to start with David. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mark. Um, I guess my role uh, was initially as co-founder of the organization 10 years ago with David Hartso. And, uh, you know, that's been finished for 10 years. You just go on having the title. And now I'm executive director, which means that I work with a large and growing board, a large and growing advisory board, a large and growing uh, roster of paid staff and some paid, some unpaid interns, and countless volunteers. Um, and it's a wide variety of work from the, the most boring administrative nonsense uh, to all kinds of educational and activist events, uh, real world and from the desk. David, um, what what is your background that for folks who maybe are listening to the podcast for the very first time and don't know David Swanson, what brought you to the work of uh, working for a world without war? Well, I'm not a fan of even small-scale murder, much less uh, mass murder. Um, I, 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 I know it's you know just horrendously obnoxious, but my initial response to that question has always been. Why the hell are you not a peace activist? Um, because 
uh, a, a basic concept of morality. Uh, interestingly, uh, what the what the Carnegie Foundation uh, for Peace was set up to do and, you know, abandoned decades ago was identify the very worst thing in the world, work on eliminating it, identify the second worst thing in the world, work on, you know, and war is the worst thing. Uh, and so we're trying to eliminate it. Uh, if you're if you're raised as a human being in almost any culture on earth, you're told not to hit your friends, to use words, to resolve disputes. Uh, and if you grow up in the Washington, D.C. area and you see all around you the uniforms and the marble buildings and the massive investment in mass murder without, you know, any particular so-called need for mass murder in sight, just endless permanent preparation for mass murder. Like NATO this week talking about Putin is guaranteed to attack in maybe five or eight years. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure he does. And we attack back and destroy all life on earth. Like it, either you accept, either you think your parents and teachers are all lying and you really should hit your friends uh, in preschool or you accept this hypocrisy and this contradiction and you stick it in the back of your head and live with it as so many people do with so much nonsense or you don't put up with it and you say no we're not going to behave that way we can do better there's you know there's no even you have to grow up and study and and get lucky to learn the knowledge that there have been thousands of human societies that have gone for endless millennia without war or anything resembling it even even small scale murder uh but regardless even if no human society had ever done that, there isn't anything to tell us that we can't. So why the hell wouldn't we try to? Thank you, David. And that's a good segue to our next guest, Phil Gittens, who is the education director of World Beyond War. Phil, getting us out of this mindset of um, if we don't make war, what else do we do? You know, war is inevitable. War is a, a, a natural part of, of the human condition. Um, talk about your work in trying to undo some of that conditioning as education director with World Beyond War. Yes. Okay. Well, I think uh, an important part of getting to a world beyond war is obviously educating people around the world that there are much, 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 much better alternatives. Um, so I, before talking about some of the ways in which we try and do that, it might be worth kind of stepping back like like David did as well and say a few words about what brought me to World Beyond War just to kind of contextualize it, because it's quite interesting. Um, so, so my background started within, let's say, peace with self and peace with others, although I didn't know of peace building at the time. So in the fields of kind of youth and community organizing, I'm a psychotherapist by training and also a teacher. Um, I got introduced to world, well, actually, no, I got involved with peace building work probably in, in about 15 years ago, um, and then went on to do masters, and then went on to do a PhD doctorate in international conflict analysis, and then write a book and things like this. But I was very much for this idea of we need to focus on positive peace and being nice to each other and things like this, okay, which of course is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, but I actually got introduced to Tony Jenkins, who is who was the education director before myself. And I met him in London and then he introduced me to to World Beyond War and I got chatting to them. And then I um, yeah got introduced more to World Beyond War's work. And then I kind of it, it forced me to think a bit broader, broaden my notions and practices of what it means to be a peace builder beyond peace with self and peace with others to look at peace within systems. Um, so that's that's kind of a little bit of context of what brought me to World Beyond War. I think within the field, there's this, there's this too often this discussion between either or, you're either for peace, positive peace is a big kind of push right now, you know, or you're against war and people see them as kind of separate, but they're not, they're mutually enforcing, you know, um, of course, in order to our goal is, you know, to work towards a world beyond war, but even broaden that, it's to bring about peace. Um, and we know that in order to bring about peace, uh, in order to improve the chances of bringing about lasting positive peace, 
then a massive obstacle in the way is to get rid of the current system that we have, the war system, you know, and everything that goes with that. So then part of our work is to try and educate people around um, alternatives. We'll get into some of that in a little bit. Continuing our introductions, uh, another guest with us is your normal, your regular host for this podcast, Technology Director for World Beyond War, Mark Elliott Stein. Hey, Mark, give us a little bit of the same. What's your background that brought you to PeaceWork and and what is the role that you serve in World Beyond War? Thank you, Maria. I, I love being on the other end of this. And um, for me, I think I have a somewhat different background. I'm a software engineer and I make a living building basically information architecture. And I've learned the difference between good systems and bad systems. And I noticed that Phil used the word systems before. Um, The war system is dysfunctional, dystopian, suicidal. I truly believe that the world is um, driving off a cliff or the human race is driving off a cliff. And as an engineer, (laughs) um, I believe we can and must do better. I absolutely do not believe that war is inevitable. I am sure that we are capable of a world beyond war if we so choose and if we can simply improve our thinking. I should also mention I have a degree in philosophy and philosophy means a lot to me. I consider myself a Buddhist and an existentialist. And I believe that um, every philosophical discipline points to the importance of human cooperation, empathy, um, you know, the basic values that war is murdering. (laughs) I don't mean that war is murder. I mean that war murders these values as well as war is murder itself. Um, You know, there's a phrase, the low hanging fruit. And we use the term low hanging fruit in software, you know, what meaning what are the easy things that we can achieve without too much effort? I believe ending war is the low hanging fruit for humanity. We can achieve this. I expect a world at peace in my lifetime and I will be beyond (laughs) disappointed if if I don't see an end to war. I I believe war is insane and um, and we can do better. Thank you, Mark. Going around the circle, I have um, our newest team member, I believe, our Africa organizer, Guy Fugap. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me here. Yes, just like uh, the previous speaker, just uh, going to share a bit of how I get involved in World Beyond War in this work at large. Uh, yes, my very first contact with uh, World Beyond War was in 2019 when I uh, enrolled to do the course online war and environment. And I could hear from very uh, everyone participating in the course how uh, the consequences of war uh, do not often be are not often considered when addressing uh, the war. We always talk about peace, uh, we want to achieve peace, but this side of the consequences of war uh, were somehow neglected. I could see how uh, participants in the course were sharing uh, ideas, views on how to to include every, uh, to have an holistic approach to ending wars. And I feel that something was uh, missing, considering from this scene from African perspective. Like when you were talking about wars, it was like it was a Western thing. War was like Western thing, and many people were just talking about war happening in in Western or provoked by Western countries or being suffered by the the other part of the world. And I could see that war is everywhere. And uh, not all wars are treated the same, and which is unfair because war have the same impact, the same consequences. And I thought it was good that we have this uh, way of seeing things from Africa because Africa uh, has faced lots of war for a long time and that has not been given uh, consideration. 
And I thought it was good that we talk about what is happening in Africa, what are the current forms in Africa, and what are the possible uh, solutions that can come from Africa to end all wars. And what I liked the most was this perspective of ending all wars, because before uh, uh, joining World Beyond War, I was working for Will for the Women's National League for Peace and Freedom, which had an, uh, it has another approach of uh, approaching wars, if I can put it like that. And the uh, World Beyond War uh, targets all wars and uh, the meets around, the, uh, around wars. And from this perspective, I see that in, in Africa, we have existing opportunities that we can bring to this uh, global movement, which is looking forward to being very inclusive world beyond war. From Africa, we have lots of peace perspective that we can bring on the table. And yes, this is how uh, I got interested in World Beyond War by starting the first chapter in Cameroon uh, in 2020. And today the movement is growing in Africa. And I'm here for organizing everything. everything. And yeah, that's it. Thank you so much, Guy. And uh, last but not least around our circle is our organizer in Latin America, Gabriel Aguirre. Gabriel, same question to you, please. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, came to be a member of World Beyond War. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, uh, Maria, for your questions. I appreciated the, this opportunity to share some important ideas about our work in World Beyond War in this podcast. Uh, of course, I'm from Venezuela. In general, I, I come from a family that was always uh, linked to work uh, for a solidarity with the poorest. Uh, my mother, she's a, an educator, and my father was a, a union leader for several years. Uh, and I believe that uh, defending the, the right to education and the right uh, of workers uh, made me human enough to, to also defend the human right to peace. Uh, which everyone should have uh, the peoples in, in the world. Uh, so then the experience of uh, knowing the reality that the many people in the world life, uh, my work experience in, in Africa, in Asia, in Middle East, and Latin America, commit uh, to me much more to, to work for peace. Uh, to work for peace, uh, you must know uh, the, the horrors the horrors of, of war and the violence in, in general. Um, this is what I had the opportunity to see in the war. Uh, this is why I, I made the decision to work to end all war uh, and all forms of violence and, and build uh, of a war of peace, solidarity and, and social justice, of course. Uh, since 2023, I'm like an organizer for Latin America of War Beyond War. Uh, the main objective is, is to connect with the different organizations and, and movements that also work in, in this field, uh, as well as uh, strengthen the organic growth of World Beyond World through its chapters. Uh, we are in a region marked by the domination, colonialism, violence, and you know the military, political, and economic power of the United States in, in, in that region. Uh, so we have uh, a lot of work to do. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you all. Wow. So in 10 years, World Beyond War has extended its reach to so many places around the globe. How many chapters of World Beyond War are there and how many uh, continents and countries are we touching? Well, I do know because we changed it today that we have people, at least one person, maybe 20,000 people, but at least one person who has signed our peace pledge, our declaration of peace in at least 196 countries. Uh, and, you know, our, our goal for years was to get to the 175 that they thank the U.S. troops for watching the sports events from on television. Uh, and we've long since surpassed that and are uh, closing in on 200 uh, countries. Um, 
in many of those countries, we have lots of volunteers, we have affiliated organizations, we have friends and allies. Uh, and in a lot of them, we have chapters. Um, I can't tell you off the top of my head without going to the, the website, worldbeyondwar.org and looking. Um, but we're, you know, Gabrielle can tell you we're about to launch a chapter in El Salvador. It's, it's almost every day we're starting a new chapter. Uh, and most of these chapters are staying active and growing. Uh, we're not just starting them. Uh, and uh, in part, that's because of all the work everybody's doing long term, uh, educational and an activist. And in part, it's because of a of a surge in activism uh, now and again, including now uh, when people are out in the streets and opposed to a particular war like the war on Gaza. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that we're growing. I wish some of the reasons why we're growing were not there. I want to hear about the strategy. I mean, this is an incredible accomplishment over 10 years. How strategically has World Beyond War been able to accomplish such effective organizing and broadening its reach so widely around the world? What strategies have you found um, most effective collectively and in your individual work? Finding the right people and not paying them much, I think, uh, is the, is the key um, because it's uh, it's expensive to run an organization, um, and you know we do uh, we do exciting things like raise money to put up billboards, but then all that money's gone on into the billboards. Or you know we are doing uh, this week. I'm doing an event about a bunch of billboards we put up, but it's a fundraiser for uh, for food, not bombs, for a local group that feeds people who need food. Uh, and so all that money comes in and goes out, and it's gone. Uh, and nobody wants to fund running an organization, you know, and so we have to find uh, large and small donors who will donate repeatedly, who will sign up as recurring, sustaining donors so that we have a regular income, uh, and then work on finding grants and uh, selling tickets to exciting events and registering people for online courses and, and offline courses and uh, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but we have had, I don't know if it's skill or luck, but we've done very well in terms of who we've hired. Uh, the people on half of them are, are on this call and not half of them, but a bunch of them are, are here. Um, and we've had almost no turnover. We, you know, everybody we've hired is almost all of them are still hired, uh, you know, and, uh, so we've been able to to slowly grow and we've you know first we added an organizer in Canada uh, and I don't know if it quite paid for itself but it wasn't complete loss financially because you bring in more people and more support and more funds uh, and we've now tried the same in Latin America and Africa uh, and if we can keep it going uh, you know it'll be a model that we can expand uh, to the globe, to organizers on every continent and organizers in every corner of every continent. Um, this is the goal. I want to give other people a chance to answer that question, kind of the strategies that they that are that they appreciate or that they believe are moving people around the world to support World Beyond War and the work. But I think you raise an interesting point there, David. I think a lot of us have been conditioned that doing our heart work doesn't pay any money and that activists uh, shouldn't be paid or we should work ourselves to the bone, you know, uh, for the causes that we believe in uh, and not receive any compensation. But then how do you do the work if you have to work another job? So the model, this, the model of simply paying people for their work um, is, is, as you've expressed, David, is, is an important um, element to World Beyond War's uh, success and successful reach. Well, a lot of people we pay part time, myself included, and we work other jobs as well, uh, uh, usually by choice. In my case, in the case of our organizing director and others, it's by choice. We want to have uh, more than one job and we want to be paid for, for more than one job. Um, in, in other cases, we're 
paying people part-time because we can't afford to make them full-time, at least not yet. Um, other people, we are managing to make it be a full-time or a three-quarters time uh, job. Um, but yeah, there are expensive parts of the world geographically that we haven't been able to afford to hire a, a, a good enough person in yet. Um, you know, it is, it is, expensive um to hire people i'm but but you're right I, I mean i'm one of the few people who actually believes you shouldn't make much and you should work yourself to death um but most people don't believe that um and uh you can't you can't put out a one ad for that uh nobody's gonna apply you know so we have to you know we have to find a balance we have to find people who are willing to work for less than they could make for some corporate horror job but uh you know we have to pay them enough that you know they're they're compensated and they're living well i think um it's a good point it's about finding that balance around kind of supporting you know staff and things like this and i think it's worth um really doing a shout out because we're only able to do the work that we do because of the brilliant 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 people that we work with on the ground um who are often doing this all voluntary so think about the situation with the military where they get paid reasonably well um they have a lot of training that they're they're um you know that they engage with they have they're very good um, in terms of structured, in terms of planning, etc. So we have to, in a similar way for the peace movement, provide people with excellent training, be very structured and very planned, but we don't have the finances that the war system does. So we have to be, we have to be really kind of flexible, um, you know, to work with the volunteers, you know, in different parts of the world that we work with that, that don't do this as their full-time job generally, you know, that, where you work for the war system, you have a job, for example, a soldier, where there isn't as many jobs out there that say peace builder, you know? So we have to be kind of flexible in terms of, you know, the, the work that we do and people that, that we work with do it around all their other work that they do. Um, so I think that's really something worth highlighting that those people there out on the ground, and again, there's so much research uh, arguing and actually um, a much more focus within the field now, uh, putting attention to locally led peace building work, you know, on the ground um, without losing sight of the bigger global intention. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that because those are the real people we provide the platform the the infrastructure etc and the support because these people need support and they need you know to upskill and 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 often capacity building opportunities networking opportunities which we're very good at in terms of um, supporting them but those are the people that really dedicate their time and energy and in some cases lives because they're out on the forefront doing this very 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 important work Guy and Gabrielle you guys are in uh, other countries outside of the English speaking world. Talk about some of the strategies that you feel are effective in the work that you're doing. Yes, from the past three years that I have been involved in World Beyond World work, what I saw to be very effective in making this uh, movement grow, it's a communication. It's a very uh, good communication put in place. If you walk through the website of World Beyond War, you will find a lot, a lot of uh, resources, a lot of training material, courses. This is a tremendous source of uh, reach for, for those who want to uh, engage in peace work, don't want to engage in activism. The website has every of these resources. So I find this very incredible. And just uh, walking throughout this website, you can learn, learn lots of things. It's a, good, uh, it's a good strategy to develop this kind of communications. And uh, site, uh, Phil also mentioned some of the things I wanted to talk about, like uh, the trainings, uh, the, the networking opportunities that are given. These are some of the strategies that I think uh, work very well. Yeah. And I want to welcome Rachel Small. Hi, Rachel. She's our organizer in Canada. Welcome, Rachel, to this 10th anniversary special uh, for World Beyond War. 
if you'd like to take a moment to give us an introduction, everyone has already spoken about their background and what brought them to World Beyond War. We're also talking about the strategies of your work and what you find to be so effective that in its 10 years, World Beyond War has grown so much and has reached so many corners of the world. And what do you find are some of the most effective strategies that you're working on or the organization in general? Welcome. Thank you so much. So glad to be joining. Um, so as you mentioned, I am the Canada organizer for World Beyond War. I'm, I'm based in in Toronto, uh, Canada. So it's the biggest city in Canada. And it's also uh, Treaty 13 and Dish With One Spoon Indigenous Territory. I've been a community organizer well here in Toronto for over a decade and, and for several decades generally and have been organizing primarily within environmental justice and international solidarity movements around the world. Uh, and I've, I often have focused on working in solidarity with communities who have been harmed by the Canadian extractive industry around the world. That was kind of my entry point into looking at Canadian militarism and what are the ways that the extractive industries, whether it's oil or mining, uh, collaborate with um, armed forces, with military projects, <laughs> with the war machine, um, and that was sort of my my initial entry point into into the world of anti-war organizing. Over the past uh, few years that I've been working with with World Beyond War, it has been, yeah, just such a huge privilege to support grassroots organizing from coast to coast to coast. i'm I'm surprised every week by the the new ways. And, and the ways that people have been doing this work for, for many decades that continue to be very relevant, that people are challenging the military industrial complex, that are looking at Canadian complicity in violence around the world and how we can continue to stand in solidarity with people on the front lines of, of struggles. The chapters across Canada are in small towns, are in uh, high school groups, are in the biggest cities in the country. There's just a huge diversity of the people across this country organizing uh, in abolitionist ways against war and for peace. And it's it's just been so incredible to be part of that. Respond the last question. As uh, mentions, David, we are growing, for example, in Latin America, we have more than 40 organizations that have uh, signed our peace declaration in, in almost all Latin American countries. Uh, we currently uh, working to create in the, the chapter number five in El Salvador the next week. And we hope to continue growing the, the, in the context uh, of the world is, uh, is that reality. Uh, it demands uh, that more people organize to face to, to war and to build peace, uh, prevent humanity from, from being involved in a third world war. Uh, that ends the, the existence of the human species. Uh, that is why we are part of, of an objective that needed the world. Uh, I think the most effective strategy, strategy uh, is connected to building large uh, working coalitions around a common objective, uh, having the ability to, to manage the different interests and work with, with different perspectives. Uh, individually, I think that uh, uh, my main strat strategy is, is to be insistent and not let uh, apathy, uh, disappointment in, in seeing what is happening in the world overcome us, uh, but always think that it's possible to build uh, a better world, never lose hope. The one word that I would use um, as to describe what I consider our most significant strategy is teamwork. And I want to say, I love this team. Um, I love it that Rachel showed up late, which shows how busy we all are. And there are several other people on the World Beyond War team who aren't here, not because they don't want to be here, but because we're all too damn busy. Um, we are so busy. And I'd like to um, refer back to what David said about hiring good people and paying them very little. You know, we all we all are here because we care. Um, we're not here because we're trying to maximize our earning potential. Um, many of us started as volunteers. I started as a volunteer. I know, Guy, you were known to us before you became a staff member. And I think that's very important to our culture. And I really feel that um, 
we work together better than any corporation I've ever worked for. I've worked, I've done software work for a lot of corporations. They tend to be dysfunctional, like governments tend to be dysfunctional. I've also worked for the U.S. federal government. Actually, during the Obama administration, I worked in Washington, D.C. as a software developer for several federal um, government divisions, and they were all absolutely abysmal um, teamwork culture competitive, backstabbing, greedy, abusive of taxpayer money. That's how I would characterize my several years working in Washington, D.C. with the federal government. So for me, it's the quality of the teamwork. And I just wanted in the middle of this podcast, say thank you to everybody who's here and thank you to the team members who aren't here because they're too busy to be here. Thank you, Mark. David. I just wanted to add, if I can, because I feel like I, I commented so much on the administrative and financial nonsense that I have to deal with so much uh, that I've been, that we we all haven't spoken that much, and I've spoken not at all to to what we created World Beyond War to do and what's different about it. Um, uh, Rachel used the word abolitionist. I, I think this is this is key. We are an ab from day one. We are a group working to abolish war and all preparations for war and all militarism from culture. Uh, and this makes us very different from groups and individuals that are opposing particular horrendous tactics in a war or a particular side of a particular war without comprehending even the idea that you can oppose the other side as well. And we set out to end war without war, to, to use nonviolence to end war um, and to oppose all sides of all wars uh, and all preparations for more wars and to do it globally, to be a global organization with leadership and staff and supporters from all over the world. And all of that has been, some of that's not immediately appealing to some people, but a lot of it has been very appealing to a lot of people who want to join something that's nonviolent, that's principled, that has an argument that makes sense, uh, and that brings people together into a global community of people who are not loyal to national governments or races or ethnic groups, but to the the human cause of ridding the world of war. And, and all of this has made us stronger. And we set out to use education and activism and the education part, in addition to persuading all kinds of people, which we can document, you know, we do uh, courses and webinars and debates where we survey people at the beginning and the end, we see how persuasive the arguments are, but it's also a way to generate the activism and some of our staff people and a lot of our volunteers, you know, have come in through, uh, through being students of our educational work uh, and have become active. Um, and so we we created this 10 years ago, knowing full well that peace organizations existed, but not seeing one that was for the complete abolition of war globally and through nonviolence. Um, and so we try to use the teamwork uh, that Mark described in working with other groups as well. We try to work well as a member of coalitions, uh, even very uncomfortable ones where we're in a coalition with uh, groups, uh, some of whose work we dramatically oppose. But the whole time we try to nudge other groups in the direction that we think is most uh, strategic. Um, and we've had some success with that as well. Yeah, David, it's funny because I was my question, my next question before you spoke was going to be, you know, kind of along the lines of that, because I think as I as I hear you guys speaking and I hear the words, you know, the term peace builder, for example, I, I wrote that down because what does a peace builder mean? Because we have people, you know, considering um, Zelensky to be a peacekeeper or a peace builder. Um, we have, I remember, you know, my memory is very clear of George W. Bush uh, using the word peace. Uh, we have Netanyahu using the word peace and talking about building peace. So how do we begin to dismantle uh, even our allies? How do we be begin to challenge and dismantle that notion of, 
you know, well, maybe sometimes war is still allowable. You know, um, we wrote a piece, the Center on Conscience and War wrote a piece uh, about a year and a half ago, a little less than a year and a half ago, um, criticizing Ukraine's violent response. And while we got a lot of gratitude from our constituency, people saying thank you for giving us the words, giving us the voice to talk with our communities, our congregations, right? Because churches are often behind war, very much so. Uh, But we also got some pushback. We got people, allies for years and years and years who were very quote unquote, their words, very disappointed in us pointing the finger at um, Ukraine's violent response. So what are some ways that we can um, challenge uh, the notion of peace building being possible through war? Uh, well, I think there's a, there's a number of strategies. And I think one thing we've learned that different things work for different people at different times. There's not one overall kind of way of doing things. But um, this is speaking with my educational hat on here. I think it's different to to physically change somebody's mind. Um, I think a useful strategy is to provide information. Um, and you would think, ideally, you provide information based on evidence, based on fact, based on research that backs it up and people would change their mind. But actually, it shows that people don't do that. People don't do that. People often change their mind based on feelings. Um, so one of the strategies that I find useful is to um, think about a level playing field. So let's look at the costs of you know, our current approach to peace building, let's say, which is predominantly dominated by the use of war to try and manage, resolve, prevent conflict. Let's look at the costs. And then you look at the financial costs. You look at the environmental costs. You look at, you know, the amount of people that are getting killed all the while. That's not to mention the moral argument around stop killing people, you know. And then you say, okay, let's weigh up um, what we know from nonviolence. And basically there's a whole swath and a whole body full of research which basically says nonviolence is twice or more successful in terms of bringing about change we can mobilize so many more people to work for non-violence than we can violence um because of basically the idea of people power um and you would hope that through that people would hopefully give a second thought to you know to to using violence um you know that's one of the strategies but this is one of men we debunk the myths um of war and militarism that's one of the approaches that we take as well which i think is quite useful i think it's really easy in in the in the part of the world that wages war you know the co- you know most of us on this call are are from sort of the the colonizer community, right? We're from the global north. We're from, um, you know, the militarized, most militarized and most colonizing countries. So it's easy for us and our communities to kind of sit back and not um, really um, understand, really uh, internalize the the true human costs of war. And it's sort of an intellectual exercise. You know, it's not, there's no risk of it really being your child, your sibling, your parent. Um, but in, world, in, in the world that has been colonized and uh, invaded, maybe it's a little bit of a different story. But I, I want to ask our friends from Latin America and from Africa, um, how, how do you see um, the notion of a just war, uh, sort of breaking through that? Do you find that it is easier in your communities for uh, people to embrace a, an idea of total nonviolence? Um, or are there is there still some pushback, uh, the idea that a war could be just or necessary? Guy or Gabrielle, either, who wants to jump in, please. Yeah, uh, about your reflections, it's, it's very important, Maria. Well, um, uh, in, in that opinion about the, about Bush, about Zelensky, about Netanyahu, uh, I believe that this is a part of a, a, a false narrative. Uh, the first thing uh, we have to think is about is how to build a peace. Okay, uh, we build a peace investing uh, eight hundred billion of dollars in the military industry. Uh, we build a peace uh, with the more than. 10,000 deaths that currently exist in Gaza Strip. Uh, a peace building can be named as a person who promotes the, the stranding of NATO. We have always said that the NATO is the finger of the trigger of imperialism. Or is a peace builder one who promotes uh, we are, uh, war as the only way 
way out of the conflicts, for example. Peace is, is built uh, when we are able to adequately manage conflicts. Uh, peace is built when we promote solidarity between peoples. Peace is promoted uh, when we work for social justice. Peace is built when despite, uh, when despite our difference, we recognize each other. We respect the right of, uh, of a living beings to exist. Peace uh, is built when we definitely put aside difference and advance in cooperation and the search for, for a common destiny. Uh, I think that is the, the, main, the main ideas about this. Thank you, Gabriel. Go ahead, Keith, please. Yes, I will just take two examples to, to respond to this. Uh, in Cameroon, uh, when uh, the crisis in the English-speaking region started, it was, there was demonstration that started and they, they were violent. And the way the government responded to it was violently. As a response to violence, they brought it violence and they, they said they wanted to bring peace. They wanted to bring peace and they use uh, uh, violence. And as a result today, we have not brought in any peace and we are now seven years in this war. Uh, another uh, example, when uh, we usually do uh, training workshops for example, mentioning gender-based uh, violence, domestic violence. When we talk about it, it's, it seems very far from the realities, from the people. They feel not concerned because war and violence, it always seems like every uh, other people's thing until we face it, until we see how it is affecting us. So, Coming to the, this example of uh, domestic violence, when we ask people to uh, be careful about this, they don't feel much concerned, but you take an example. Say, imagine that your daughter that you have sent to marriage is facing this or that, and now things become serious, and they now start thinking on ways to stop uh, domestic violence. Just because they see it's the reality, they face it. So just to summarize these two by saying that we have to show facts. We have to show examples of uh, what are the consequences of war. We have to bring uh, this to earth because it affects us every day. And we see we have to show this exact reality of what is happening in the field so that people can see that it is not a joke. War is not, it's not a joke. So um, we shall show which amount of money and resources goes to war. The example of Cameroon, a lot of, lot of money has been diverted to, to fight these uh, armed groups. The lot of resources have been invited into war and the other sectors of life, such as education, health, are not taken care of. And when we show the figures, when we show the figures, people now understand that war is not not good. And these are some of the ways I think we can show to people that it's important to invest in peace, not in war. Yeah. Well, I would just add agreeing with what everybody has said that, you know, there's a small group of people where it's mostly an issue of who has standing to speak, who will tell you, I think the Palestinians would be wiser using strategic nonviolence, but how dare you tell the Palestinians what to do? And all you have to do in these cases is agree with them. I have no interest in telling any Palestinians what to do. I'm too busy telling the US government to stop arming Israel for God's sake. But if you want my advice, this is what works, you know. Um, but for most people, uh, it's it's about cheering for the wars that the corporate media tells them to cheer for. Um, and uh, and many people, uh, you know, uh, I agree with Phil. Emotion matters, but many people are moved by facts. But you have to get them to a point where they can think clearly, and so it can help. 
uh, with current wars, it can help not to engage in the outrageous nonsense of, oh, Putin is totally justified in murdering people. Hamas is totally justified in murdering people as peace groups, as groups that call themselves peace groups do. Uh, but to explain how passionately you oppose the very side of the war they want you to oppose and the other side too, and try to get, and, but then it helps also to move to wars that they aren't in a fever about to talk about wars that are 20 or 100 years old, uh, including the absolutely rock foundation central mythology of their worldview, World War II. Because World War II is not something they're in a mad fever about at the moment. It's just something they've internalized a lot of false ideas about. Uh, and facts can make a huge difference. The, most people don't know the very basic facts. Um, and, and so I, I think it is possible to persuade people. And when you can't persuade people all the way, if you can persuade them two or 3% of the way, you know, we put up these billboards, 3% of US military spending could end starvation on earth. The notion that that last 3% in a department that's never passed an audit and can't tell you where the money is going at all is doing something better than ending starvation on earth. That's a, that's a method, a matter of faith, right? That's not belief, to believe that. Uh, and when you have U.S. military spending more than 227 other countries combined and doing horrendous damage, and everybody will agree this war was horrible, this war was horrible, this war was horrible, even if they think one or two of them were good, or there might be a good one someday, who knows? They're all willing, everybody's willing to start cutting back to start moving in the right direction. Um, and, and that's all we need, you know, that's, that's all we need is to, is to force those in power uh, to reverse the trends that are, that are moving in the wrong direction. Beautiful. At the Center on Conscience and War, we, you know, we always say there's been conscientious objectors as long as there's been war. And so we want to work ourselves out of a job. So looking forward into the next 10 years, um, how do we ensure that, uh, what actions can people take to ensure that World Beyond War uh, is even closer to its mission or achieves its mission in the next 10 years? Just gonna jump around. So advice to people listening out there, what can they do uh, to ensure World Beyond War into the next 10 years? Uh, Mark. I think the most important thing is for us to realize that we are not so-called citizens of our so-called countries, but that we are citizens of the world and that um, we care about people in other countries as much as we care about people in our own country. Um, I'd like to reject the concept of nationalism, which is really, uh, you know, as many historians will tell you, no older than the Napoleonic age. Um, and let's get rid of it. It hasn't done the world much good. Rachel. Where I think the future of our resistance is, and where I'm getting a ton of hope right now, is seeing just the huge appetite that everyone I'm interacting with has to draw all the connections, to see our struggles as linked. So as Mark highlighted, to see past uh, colonial and imperialist state borders, to uh, a real connection to international solidarity, but also to the interconnections between the climate crisis and colonization and racism and militarization and other forms of state violence. Um, our movements are are not competing against each other for attention or limited resources or whatever it is, but are are vastly stronger together. And I think people are are hungry to not address issues in silos, but to work together. And I'm talking about it from the perspective of different issues and different countries, but it, it also applies in terms of of different tactics in the incredible upswell of Palestinian solidarity organizing happening in Canada right now. I'm increasingly seeing incredible collaborations between the folks who are doing direct actions uh, like weapons blockades, directly interrupting the flow of, of military goods to Israel with the folks who are, are lobbying in Ottawa in the nation's capital and who are putting out sort of high profile international reports with humanitarian organizations around the world. Not everyone is gonna follow the same tactics, but we can absolutely all be pointed towards the same horizon of an end to war and end to military violence. 
and a livable world from other perspectives as well. And I'm seeing a lot of, of that intersectional organizing and it's, it's just brilliant. Thank you, Rachel. Phil? Two things, one is connection and one is collaboration. I think we need to make, it's linked to what Rachel was saying around connections, but people to make connections between what happens far away in faraway countries implicates us. There's a, I think we're all implicated in the war system, but in different ways. So I think part of our challenges is to try and educate people in Global North that think they're not impacted, really are impacted because when we're spending all these this money it's diverting tension away from them so that's the biggest challenge because we think that we're helping people out there you know where our biggest i think one of the biggest challenges is educating people in the global north around their role um in wars that happen often in the global south so connections that's one thing and i think the second one is collaboration uh, no one person, no one organization can do it alone. We need to collaborate. And if we think of all of the world's crises, we need global collaboration. Uh, if you think of the existential crises that we're facing, nuclear apocalypse, climate change, you know, technology, we all need global collaboration. And with the war system in place, that's less likely. Thank you, Phil. And Gabrielle? I, I think we believe in, in a new world. We believe in a world of justice. We believe in a world of equality. We believe in a world beyond wars, where anyone can live together in solidarity, fairness where a skin color is not a factor to differentiate us, uh, where the economy position does not ensure rights to, to some and not to, to others, where being born anywhere in the world is not a difference, and um, a world where where are socially equal and humanly different. I believe that our global movement, War Beyond War, has uh, an irreplaceable uh, role to play in the current context. Today we have 10 years, but our movement will last as long as it takes to end uh, all wars. We are convinced, we are encouraged, and we are going to achieve it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, all of you. Congratulations to World Beyond War, to this tremendous staff for all of your work over the last 10 years. And I think just in closing, um, I would like to say that the common denominator that we've heard throughout this hour is the importance of connections between people. It is the grassroots that is going to bring about a world beyond war. And in my work at the Center on Conscience and War, what I've realized is that it is our default nature to cooperate with one another. The military knows this, and that's why military training is so scientifically designed to get us to overcome our innate desire to communicate, to cooperate with one another and collaborate with, with one another and train us to kill. And we have to undo that conditioning that is only that has only touched a very small uh, number of the population. But I want to thank World Beyond War for so skillfully and deliberately reminding us that our true nature is peace. Thank you all very much. I wait. Me. Mm -hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.